You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Well, good morning. How are we, guys? Good, good. My name is Brandon. If I haven't met you yet, I'm one of the pastors here. Glad that you're with us. Uh, I wanted to let you know that I uh, typically pride myself on being a very thorough person. Uh, and there's cert- a certain kind of professionals that I'm, I'm kind of their worst nightmare, to be honest. Uh, so uh, real estate agents, uh, uh, I'm in their worst nightmare. Um, I ask a lot of questions. If, if I ever go into uh, a car lot, I am a car salesman's worst nightmare, okay? I'm not a jerk, I'm not mean, but I am incredibly thorough. I ask a lot of questions, um, and I've had people in that realm uh, frequently before tell me, you ask a lot of questions. (laughs) And I say, thank you. (laughs) So if you ever need someone to read a 25-page contract for you and find the, the fine print that you need to look out for, I'm your guy, okay? I volunteer. I enjoy that kind of stuff. Uh, my wife uh, says I'm thorough. She uses other words too sometimes, but uh, she says I'm thorough. And uh, so just one, one story I could tell you out of many, honestly, is uh, several years ago, uh, my wife is a, is a therapist and she was working at a counseling center, kind of branched off to uh, start her own practice on Divine Street. We we're really excited. Uh, and since it was a new ad- adventure, her starting her own business, uh, I'd always done our taxes before, and I was just like, I'm just going to try. Just one for one year, I'm going to hire a CPA, just to see if they can be better than me. If they can <laughs> get us help with our taxes that I don't know about. Surely they know things, right? They know they're going to get us better a better deal than I'll be able to doing them on my own. So uh, the only way I even knew how to get all of our information to the CPA that we hired was to do them myself. That was the only way I knew how. So I just got TurboTax, did them all myself, and I took all of our stuff and went over and said, here you go, CPA. I'll pay you $300 to do what I've already done, just because I want to see what happens. Uh, He came back uh, several weeks later with our tax bill, and it was uh, $1,000 more than what I thought it should be. So I scheduled an appointment with him, and I went in to meet with the CPA, and I said, hey, you, you did our taxes wrong. And he said, no, 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 we didn't. And I said, yes, yes, you did. And he said, no, no, we couldn't have. We didn't do that. And I was like, yes, let me, let me show you what you did wrong. And I laid out my case for what he did wrong. And he said, oh, yeah, we did. We did them wrong. And that's just one story out of many stories but that I could tell you. <laughs> but with all that said, there's one giant blind spot and my general knack for thoroughness, and that would be finding stuff at my house. Huge gaping blind spot. I can tell you, I can't tell you the number of times this has played out in my marriage where I'll need something and I'll go looking for said something where I think it is, and I will say, babe, she knows what that means. She knows that means I can't find something. I don't know, it could be a soap refill or anything. I'll say, babe, I can't, I can't find the soap. We don't have any soap. And she'll say, yes, we do. (laughs) Yes, we do. And then many times she'll walk over and she'll step in front of me while rolling her eyes at me. And she'll move one thing that I didn't move to look behind. And she'll say, there it is, right there. Or she'll say, "Uh, actually, no, it's over here where we moved it 
a year ago. <laughs> and I'll say, oh, okay. So as a grown adult, 34-year-old man, I can't even confidently assert the non-existence of soap in my house. I can't do that. And I tell you that to bring up an important concept for today, that of falsifiability. It's a big word, uh, falsifiability. Some things in life are falsifiable. For example, babe, we're out of soap, is something that Christy quickly and easily falsifies most of the time. Uh, this concept of falsibility, uh, falsifiability sets our faith apart from every other religion. Uh, so Joseph Smith, for example, claimed to be a prophet from God uh, by saying he had an encounter with an angel. And I, for one, am not sure how you'd go about disproving that, <laughs> you know? I don't know what you'd do to disprove that. Same thing with Muhammad. He uh, claimed to have a vision from God. I don't know how you could ever disprove something like that. You either take them at their word or you don't. Not so with Christianity. A good friend of mine who recently became a Christian here uh, asked me a couple of years ago while we were in a book club together, he said, hey, what is your smoking gun? What would make you quit Christianity, renounce Christianity, and quit your job? And without thinking, I said, easy, the resurrection. Easy. It's the same thing that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14. It's going to be up on the screen. It says, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Useless. So Christianity makes a claim that an event happened in space and time, that Jesus Christ died and then was raised from the dead, and it says if it did not happen, you should dismiss everything. Pull the plug, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And assuming you wanted to start a religion, the worst possible thing you could do would be to invent something that is easily falsifiable, at least if you want it to succeed. You'd want to make it real vague if you're trying to invent a religion. But because the resurrection is based on a historical event that is falsifiable, you can't start by asking if it's helpful or if you like it. That is exactly how you'd approach other religions. Do I like Buddha's teachings or am I more of a Joseph Smith kind of guy? But that's not how you approach Jesus. You don't start with, do I like his teachings? You're forced to start with, did he rise from the dead? Because if the answer is yes, well then, what you like or don't like is not a pressing concern anymore. Because you've suddenly become busy bowing down to him. So turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to look at Paul's argument for the resurrection. This is the evidence Paul gives before he makes the claim that if this wasn't true, our faith would be totally in vain and a waste of all of our time. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 3 through 8. And while you're turning there, I'd love to pray for our time this morning. Uh, Father, I pray that you would um, speak through your uh, supernatural spirit to our hearts this morning, through your word. I know that I do not have uh, words that could feed these souls or encourage or equip them uh, of myself, so I pray that you would speak through your spirit. Uh, encourage us, equip us. Um, Anyone who hasn't trusted in you to trust in you for the first time, uh, for those of us who have, I pray that you'd strengthen our resolve and our trust in you. And I pray that we would be able to see you clearly and be amazed by you uh, as a result of the truth we're looking at today. We love you. Amen. All right, starting in verse 3, this is Paul talking. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures 
that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So Paul's summarized argument for the resurrection is that the tomb was empty. He appeared to hundreds of, and hundreds of people after he resurrected, uh, leaving courtrooms and courtrooms full of eyewitnesses all saying the same thing, and that all of those eyewitnesses lived the rest of their lives believing that it was true. So the way I'd like to kind of frame our argument today is actually borrowed from a Christian philosopher named William Lane Craig. Uh, some of his resources are linked uh, and available on our website for this series, which is whyimachristian.com. But here's a, a long quote that he uh, starts us off with, if you'll follow along with me on the screen. He says, If for the sake of argument we approach the documents of the New Testament not as inspired holy books, but rather as a collection of documents written in the Greek language, handed down out of the first century, telling this remarkable story about this man, Jesus of Nazareth, without any assumption whatsoever as to their reliability, the same way we would approach other ancient documents for history. You might be surprised to learn that when ancient historians approach the New Testament documents with this attitude, that the majority of scholars today accept the central facts undergirding the inference to the resurrection of Jesus. And I want to emphasize that I'm not talking here about conservative scholars or evangelical scholars, rather, I'm talking about the broad mainstream of critical historical New Testament scholarship today, the work that is done by professors who teach at secular universities and non-evangelical theological colleges. Amazing as it may seem, most of them have come to agree with the historicity of the central facts undergirding the resurrection of Jesus. Okay, what he's not saying is that all of these scholars believe Jesus is resurrected Messiah, of course, but that there are three facts that almost no one disputes. So what I'd like to do today is to explain some of the historical facts surrounding the story of Jesus' resurrection and explain why they are broadly accepted as historical facts from Christian and non-Christian scholars. I'm going to give you the three up front, and then we'll walk through them. So three facts that require explanation about the resurrection. Number one is the empty tomb. Number two is the appearances of Jesus alive after his death. Number three, the disciples' belief that Jesus rose from the dead. And his point is, if you don't believe Jesus rose from the dead, you need to find an alternative story to account for all three of these accepted historical facts. And that's more difficult to do than you might think. So let me explain why most scholars accept these as fact. We'll start with number one, the empty tomb. This comes from verses three and four, where he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So Jesus was buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, and land ownership then was legal just like now with, with documents to indicate who owned what. So when Jesus' uh, some of his female followers attempt to put burial spices on him in his tomb, they know exactly where to go. The location of the tomb was widely and publicly known. And when they show up on the Sunday morning following his crucifixion, his tomb was empty. And here's how I would make the arguments for this point. Number one, uh, six independent sources state that the tomb was found empty. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, uh, 1 Corinthians, all attest to the tomb being empty. 
When an event is recorded by two unconnected sources, uh, or multiple unconnected sources, our confidence goes up that an event actually happened. And the earlier those sources are dated, the higher our confidence. Secondly, this is really simple, but uh, as people began to claim that Jesus had risen from the dead, the easiest way to shut the whole thing down would have been for someone to show Jesus' body in the tomb, which they all knew where it was. So he obviously didn't resurrect if his body was still in the tomb. And in fact, Matthew reports to us that the Jewish leaders quickly leveled this accusation that Jesus' body had been stolen by his disciples. And that claim is mentioned even years later in the writings of Justin Martyr and Tertullian. So this shows that the body was, in fact, missing from the tomb. Third, there's no record of his early Christians making Jesus' tomb a place of devotion and pilgrimage, which was normal for religious observance at that time. So why is there not a shrine to Jesus at his tomb? Because his body wasn't there. There was no reason for Peter to go to his tomb to remember him because Peter had breakfast with him after the resurrection. And fourth, this might be surprising, but for historians, one of the most powerful evidences uh, for the empty tomb is the claim that it was women who first discovered the body, or the absence of the body. Uh, Mary Magdalene is named as the first eyewitness of the risen Christ. And the other women who were mentioned as the earliest eyewitnesses uh, in the Gospels too. And uh, this was during a time where the testimony of women was not admissible evidence in courts because of their low social status in this culture. So the early pagan critics of Christianity actually latched onto this and dismissed the resurrection because of this. One example is from a second century man named Celsus who ridiculed Christianity as the word of, quote, hysterical females. If this were a legend or if this were being fabricated or altered in any way, the writers would have absolutely claimed that men were the first to find the empty tomb. To top it off, from Luke 8, we learn that Mary was formerly demonized. So Jesus cast seven demons out of her, we learn there. So she would have been a marginalized, social outcast, a demonized, formerly demonized woman, the worst person you could pick to be your first witness if you were making something up. So it's broadly accepted as historical fact that the tomb was empty. Jacob Kramer, uh, professor of New Testament studies at the University of Vienna, says this, most scholars by far hold firmly to the reliability of the biblical statements about the empty tomb. But that's just one fact. It doesn't prove anything. There, there are plausible theories as to how the tomb could have been empty, but any theory you come up with has to also account for more facts, such as number two, the appearances of Jesus alive after his death. Again, verses four through eight. Paul says that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. So this is one of the first accounts of eyewitness encounters with Jesus after his death. And this letter was written about 15 to 20 years after the death of Jesus. And notice that Paul lists the eyewitnesses. It, it says it was individuals and also groups, and that many of these eyewitnesses are still alive and can corroborate. This is a letter to a church in a city which was to be read aloud as a public document. So this is eyewitness testimony written in their own lifetimes. And look at some of the people that Paul lists as eyewitnesses. 
Peter who went from coward hiding from people, asking him questions about his association with Jesus to boldly preaching about a resurrected Jesus at the threat of his life. Does 500 people at once, uh, that kind of rules out the idea of wishful thinking or visions or hallucinations. He says James, which is Jesus' brother. So just real quick question, what would it take for you to believe your sibling was God? It's a lot, right? Take a lot. And then Paul, who went from trying to kill Christians to recruiting for them. He says he appeared also to me. This is a conversion as remarkable as James, who believed his brother was the Messiah. Because Saul was a Jewish Pharisee. He was a persecutor of the church. He hated what he thought was Christian heresy. And he was determined to do everything in his power to stamp it out. He was actually responsible for the deaths of Christian men and women simply because of their faith in Jesus. He was out to disprove Christianity, and it all turned around for this man because on the road to Damascus, he saw this appearance of the risen Jesus. And he said, I saw Jesus our Lord. And this is what made Saul the Pharisee and persecutor to be transformed into Paul the apostle and missionary of early Christianity and author of much of the New Testament. This is attested in his own letters and firsthand. And you could look at Paul's turnaround and naturalistically and say, we don't know what actually happened to him, and a number of things could have caused that drastic of a change, but uh, that was a pretty big change. The people he was killing because he thought they were so wrong and dangerous, he becomes a leader of and recruiter for. Whatever did happen to him would have to have been significant. So we have in Paul's information very good grounds for believing that various individuals and groups of people under various circumstances saw appearances of Jesus alive from the dead. Not to mention the, the other four, the four Gospels and the book of Acts also have sources who claim to have seen Jesus alive. Fact number three, the belief the disciples had that Jesus rose from the dead. So this needs a, a little bit of background. We could get into a, a graduate level course on the complexity of all this, but to summarize briefly, obviously the disciples were Jewish, and they became what we now call Christians because they became convinced that Jesus was the risen Messiah. So did many, many, many more as the church started, but not all Jewish people accepted this and became Christians. So the question is, why? And the answer is that Jesus' fulfillment of Old Testament uh, messianic prophecies is a complete and full fulfillment, but also was a bit of a plot twist for them. He is the promised Messiah, but it was different than what they expected. Like when you're watching a movie where you see everything tied together, but it's also still surprising a little bit. So the disciples were not banking on or expecting Jesus to rise from the dead necessarily. He told them it was going to happen, but like many things, they did not get what he was saying. What they expected early on in their whole life was a very earthly Messiah who would come and pick up a sword and free them from Roman occupation and then lead the nation of Israel to peace and prosperity ruling over them. And their only conception really of a resurrection was a universal event on Judgment Day at the end of the world. Uh, it, was a, it was a resurrection where all of the curse would be lifted. So if there was still sickness and dying on earth, then they thought the resurrection really hadn't fully happened yet. And they had no concept of a Messiah who would be executed by the state because that meant, like others before him, he was by definition a failed 
Messiah. So they didn't really have a concept of what good it would do for a failed Messiah to come back to life. Under Old Testament law, anyone who was executed by hanging was under the curse of God. We don't really have a category for that in our culture, but it was a huge deal. And Jewish people applied this to the crucifixion also. So as the events of the crucifixion unfolded, they weren't gaining confidence that everything was going according to plan, right? They weren't like, yes, this is just what we expected. This was utterly devastating and humiliating to them. What the crucifixion of Jesus revealed was that the Pharisees were right after all, that for three years these disciples had been following a man under the curse of God, a man who was a heretic, yet another failed Messiah. So the crucifixion was literally a catastrophe for them. It's the worst thing that could have possibly happened. They were not scheming at this point. They were hiding in fear, worried that they were going to get thrown in jail or killed by association with this failed Messiah everyone knew they had trusted in. They were mourning. In no way, shape, or form were they plotting like they were a part of the Weekend at Bernie's movie from the 90s, like trying to pretend their friend isn't dead. And they went from not even on their radar, not what they expected, not what their hope really was even in in the first place, to, oh my gosh, he's alive, he's alive, he's alive. They came to believe that God had risen Jesus from the dead, and even under threat of death, they never recanted. In fact, we know from history that almost all of the apostles were eventually killed, martyred, because they would not stop saying that Jesus had risen from the dead. So really quickly, let me share how his followers, from what we know, the best of what we know, were martyred for their faith. Bartholomew will most agree that he was martyred, that there are various beliefs about how he died. Many believe that he died in Asia Minor, being flayed to death by a whip. James the Greater is believed to have been beheaded with a sword. James the Lesser is believed to have been stoned and clubbed to death. Philip is believed to have been crucified or hanged. Andrew is believed to have been crucified on an X-shaped cross. Thomas was believed to have been impaled with a spear. Matthias was believed to be stoned and beheaded. Thaddeus, clubbed to death or killed with arrows. John survived being burned with oil. He was fortunate. Peter is said to have been crucified upside down because he didn't want to be crucified in the same way that Jesus was. So through all of that, not a single one of them recanted. How much would they have had to believe in this for not a single one of them to be like, you know what, never mind, never mind. Not one of them facing unspeakable pain and torture and death changed their story because they couldn't. So those are the three facts agreed on by the majority of New Testament scholars. The empty tomb, uh, the attestation of post-mortem encounters with the risen Jesus, and the disciples' belief that he was truly risen. So the question is, what's the best explanation of these three facts? The, this is where the disagreement arises. So scholars are fairly united on the historicity of these facts. The disagreement comes with how you best explain them. So when you hear arguments that try to explain how Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, they have to be run through these three facts. So let's look at a few of these arguments and run them through this filter. 
look at some plausible alternative explanations. The first one is legend theory, that this is all just a legend. This happened a long time ago, and it's a legend. In my experience, this is the most compelling alternative explanation uh, to a lot of modern people. It has the benefit of time. I don't think it's plausible at all, though, and I want to try to really prove that if I can. Uh, so first, this theory, uh, the timeline doesn't work at all. The simple answer to it is that there was not nearly enough time elapsed between Jesus' resurrection and the birth of the church for a legend to develop. People worshiping Jesus as God immediately after his resurrection, and we have documentation of hymns that could not have possibly been legendary. The hymn about Jesus from, uh, as God in uh, Philippians 2 is generally believed to have been written just a few years after Jesus' death. Paul quotes it in his letter. This shows that the earliest Christians worshiped Jesus immediately after his death. And speaking about our passage for today, again, William Lane Craig makes this point clear. He says, Paul uses here not only the technical rabbinical terms for received and delivered with regards to the information that he is passing on to the Corinthians, but verses 3 through 5 are a highly stylized four-line formula which is replete with non-Pauline characteristics. This has convinced all scholars that Paul is, just as he says, quoting from an old tradition which he himself received and then in turn passed on to his converts in Corinth. This tradition probably goes back to at least Paul's fact-finding journey into Jerusalem around 36 AD when he spent two weeks with Peter and with James in Jerusalem. Now, when you recall that Jesus was crucified around AD 30, that means that this information goes back to within the first five years after Jesus' crucifixion. So short a time span and such personal contact in this case make it idle to talk of legend with regard to the information in this formula. So all four of the Gospels were written inside the lifetime of eyewitnesses. Scholarly consensus is that the Gospel of Mark was written about 30 years after Jesus' death, approximately 65 AD. Matthew and Luke were written about a decade or so later, with the Gospel of John about a decade after that. And that was simply not enough time for legends to arise. In other words, these accounts weren't written down centuries of after they happened, but within the lifetimes of people who saw it happen and could debunk it. Secondly, the style uh, of historical reportage. Uh, Richard, ba Richard Bauckham in his book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, says that good ancient historians ordinarily interviewed eyewitnesses and documented it by naming them in their work. So, you know, they didn't have, quite have the same uh, referencing details that we have now. Uh, their version of a work cited page on the report or footnotes or endnotes was to name the people they talked to the people that they interviewed as eyewitnesses. So, for example, in Mark 15, uh, verse 21, he mentions Simon the Cyrene, the man who was compelled to carry Jesus' cross, and he even games, gives the names of his sons, Alexander and Rufus, which seems like an unimportant detail <laughs> to put in unless you understand that he's citing his sources. He's citing his, he's saying who you can go talk to to confirm these things. Uh, when John is telling the story about Jesus in the garden the night of his arrest, he includes the name of Malchus, the soldier whose ear Peter chopped off and Jesus put back on. He'd be a good guy to track down because I'd love to hear him tell that story. He gives his name. That's why they, they give these names is so that you can go back and talk to them and cross-reference. There are lots of places in the accounts of Jesus' life where these names seem randomly placed, just mentioned for no reason at all. Those are footnotes. Those are ancient footnotes. 
their eyewitnesses being named, potentially because they had been interviewed or questioned, bare minimum as reference points uh, for hearers to know they could go follow up with them if they had any questions. This was the custom of the time. The authors are listing their sources. And third, legendary accounts don't sound like this from antiquity. The documents that were written much later, uh, so for example, the Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Peter, did in fact have fantastic elements that people threw a flag on. Uh, False gospels have things like Jesus coming out of the tomb being 60 feet tall and his cross floating behind him. Uh, One has Jesus as a kid throwing a bully onto a roof, which sounds kind of cool, a bully kid thrown onto the roof. Uh, But these things were written about 300 years later, and they did in fact become very legendary, and they were in fact rejected because of that, exactly as we would want and expect. C.S. Lewis explains this. He says, I've been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, myths all of my life. I know what they are like. I know that not one of them is like this. Of this text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage, or else some unknown writer in the second century, without known predecessors or successors, suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic realistic narrative. The reader who doesn't see this has simply not learned to read. He's saying this is not legend literature. Uh, Fourth, uh, the documents could not have been changed later. So some people ask, what if these stories were changed later on? You know, what if Constantine made changes to spread his use of Christianity to control his empire? Well, the problem with that is Constantine happened in the 300s, and early on, New Testament letters quickly began to spread all over the place in multiple language. And even without the actual manuscripts, uh, quotations from church fathers Uh, from various places, recreates about 95% of the New Testament. So for Constantine or someone else to make changes in the 300s, after all this spreading has happened, they would have to find every single copy in every single language and change every written sermon from early church fathers, and that seems quite implausible. In other words, they were recorded too early to have been falsified then, and they spread so quickly that they could not have been falsified later on. Fifth, if the resurrection was somehow added in later, uh, how did the church get started? Because remember, the disciples were destroyed by the crucifixion. Many of them, for some reason, experienced profound life change, and the church starts, and they all start dying for the faith. But if the argument is that the early church didn't actually say Jesus resurrected and that was added later on, then why did the early church ever start in the first place? What were they forming around? Certainly not an embarrassed, shamed, false messiah. And then lastly here, uh, why did the Jewish early Christians change their day of worship from Saturday, which was the Jewish Sabbath for thousands of years, to Sunday? Is it your experience that religious people like to change things? No? All right, number two, second plausible alternative is conspiracy theory. We'll get, they'll get shorter from here on out. Conspiracy theory. They stole the body and made the whole thing up. This one sounds plausible uh, on first glance. The disciples stole the body. But unfortunately, it goes against historical fact number two, that the disciples believed that Jesus had, in fact, risen from the dead and even died for it. So the same disciples died for their claim that they personally witnessed Jesus alive. This is why it's accepted as historical fact, because people don't die for a lie. You lie because you think things will go better for you to relieve pain. And they could have lied to save their lives, and they didn't, because they couldn't. Uh, Chuck Colson, who... Uh, was in some ways involved with the Watergate scandal, uh, 
writes this, and he brings this idea home. He says, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, and then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. So if we reject the resurrection, we must come up with a more plausible alternative explanation for why thousands of Jews would overnight come to believe that a human being was the risen Son of God and then go out and die for their faith. I love how Blaise Pascal says this. He says, I believe those witnesses that get their throats cut. What a precise way to put this idea. And once again, if it were made up, it's a horrible lie. That's not a productive story. It doesn't sound plausible to its audience. Tim Keller, in a recommended resource for the series, says this, The claim that Jesus was Yahweh God who should receive worship, the notion of a crucified Messiah concept of individual resurrection, dullness of the disciples, the unsavory crowd that Jesus attracted, these were highly embarrassing aspects of the Jesus story for early Christians. They went against the grain of both Greek and Hebrew worldviews and subjected early Christians to ridicule at best and abuse at worst. Christians had every incentive to play down or eliminate these issues from the gospel accounts, but instead they are prominent. Third, we'll do these last three quickly. Apparent death theory. Uh, Jesus didn't really die. He revived in the tomb and then was able to convince his followers that he had resurrected. So this one just doesn't bear historical scrutiny. Uh, saying a Roman soldier didn't actually kill a person they were tasked to kill is untenable historically. They were experts at torture and killing. It's what they did. They knew when a person was dead. So did the people who took care of his dead body and wrapped him and buried him. Furthermore, history tells us when a powerful government sees someone as a threat and wants them dead, what are they going to be? <laughs> dead. There will not be a mishap. He was tortured so extensively, but this argument says they didn't quite kill him, that he crawled out of his tomb half dead in need of medical attention and still convinced his followers he was gloriously raised from the dead. Nah. Four, displaced body theory. Someone came and moved the body and didn't tell anyone. But again, this doesn't explain his disciples claiming to have seen Jesus post-resurrection or the fact that they died for it. So it's a very incomplete explanation. You have to account for all of the evidence when trying to discredit the resurrection. Number five, hallucination theory. People didn't really see the resurrected Jesus. They just hallucinated and thought they did. Maybe they had a bad trip or something. I don't know. This one requires a whole lot of leaps. So they hallucinated not just once, but many times. Not just in one place, but many places. Not just one person, but many persons hallucinated. Not just individuals did, but groups also hallucinated. Not just disciples, but people who also hated him hallucinated as well. It's just not plausible. Also in the ancient world, visions of dead people didn't mean a person was alive. It confirmed that person was dead and had passed on to the afterlife. So let's scratch that one too. So at some point, it becomes important to simply stand back and ask, why 
we won't accept the answer given by people who were actually there as to what happened. To take our question from last week, what's the best explanation given the evidence that we have? And we all, by nature, have a naturalist worldview. But if last week we at least cracked the door open on the possibility that God exists, it is at least possible that he intervened in human history and raised Jesus from the dead. And again, that question is what all of this hinges on. Going back to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. What Paul says here is true. If this is false, then what are we doing here? If it's not true, I'm leaving here, and I'm going to Mama Rabbit's for brunch, okay? And that German pancake cannot soothe my existential godless pain, but I will certainly try. But the good news is, as I've argued today, that Christ has indeed been raised. Our preaching is not useless, and neither is your faith. Amen? Because our faith is in the one who defeated death. And just as a, a very quick parting application for all of us, the question that we just answered changes the rubric through which we think about literally everything. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then live how you wish. Eat, drink, and be merry. Find whatever untestable religious ideology that floats your boat, if that's your thing, or not. Who cares? When we burn up in the sun, none of this will matter anyway, so do whatever you want, and who cares? But if he did, in fact, rise from the dead, then that means he is God. That he gets to set reality, not us. That whatever he said about whatever he talked about is true and right, whether I like it or not. So you don't like the Bible's sexual ethics? Neither does anyone else in our culture. If he rose from the dead, then we have to consider that the guy who proved he was God is right, and maybe that we, who can't raise ourselves from the dead, are wrong. You don't like what Jesus says about money? Not many people do. But if he rose from the dead, then we have to listen to him. It doesn't matter if you like it. But I don't like that the church is full of hypocrites. You're right. But the good news is we're not full. We have room for you too. We have room for you too. And if he rose from the dead, that means he is able to forgive our hypocrisy and yours too. So come on. But church history is full of injustice. Yeah, it is. And the resurrection of Jesus is a foretaste of the day when sin and suffering and injustice will be no more for good. If you think this is embarrassing because miracles don't just happen and people might look at you funny. Yeah, they might. But Jesus went in the grave and came out. So what if your coworker snickers at you? Countless numbers have died for their faith in Jesus, so I feel confident that we can handle a little social derision. Yeah, but I don't like the ideas of wrath and hell. Yeah, I struggle with that sometimes too. But if he rose from the dead and says there's a hell, what am I going to say? Yeah, but I don't like that, so it's not true. Dead people don't just rise from the dead. I know, right? That's what this whole thing is about. One did. 
Of course, all these things matter and need to be thoughtfully worked through, which we do all of the time. But the point is, if Jesus rose from the dead, the extent to which these questions or doubts matter just absolutely plummets. It just hits the floor. If he is alive, then okay, risen, glorious Jesus, I'll sit down and I'll listen to you. May that be the heart posture for all of us. Please pray with me. Uh, Father, thank you uh, so much that um, the resurrection of Jesus is not a legend. It is not a made-up fairy tale um, or a conspiracy. But it is uh, reality and truth. Thank you that you um, pursued rebellious human uh, humans through uh, history, through uh, forming a people for yourself in the Old Testament to, to make your name known and um, giving us law and all of that showed our, our desperate need for you, a need for a savior and a sacrifice that we could never uh, produce on our own and that you gave us that savior in Jesus, uh, that you sent your, um, your son to uh, put on human flesh and live a perfect life, perfectly pleasing to you, that succeeded in every way that we have failed and that he uh, died a sacrificial death for our sins, where you diverted your wrath onto him, and he paid the price for um, all of our rebellion against you, and made a way for us to be reconciled to you uh, by grace through faith. That's not a, of our own doing, but a gift from God. And I thank you that all of that is true because Jesus uh, got out of that tomb, because he uh, stepped out on a, on a glorious morning, and defeated sin and death and evil and suffering and injustice. Thank you that all of it is true, and I pray that you would give us the mercy that we need to believe that that is true. And I pray that you give us the mercy we need to, um, to believe it practically, uh, not just believe it as a historical event, uh, but believe that if that happened, if Jesus rises from the dead, then, um, then that means you're God. And that means what we like or don't like uh, suddenly pales in comparison. And that our, our approach should be to, um, to sit down uh, humbly, to listen to what you have to say about life, and to align our lives accordingly. So please give us the grace and the humility we need to do that. We love you. Amen.